Hello, and welcome to She Dynasty. I'm Valerie Moisel, and these are the women who rule. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to She Dynasty. This week, we're speaking with Lara Sweet, the Chief People Officer of Snap Inc., the parent company of the multimedia messaging app Snapchat. Lara joined Snap in 2016 as their VP controller and in less than five years has served as Chief Accounting Officer and Interim Chief Financial Officer before finally settling into her title as CPO. After recording this episode, and after a very successful career, Lara has announced that she will be entering the next step of her journey and transitioning into retirement. Hi, Lara. How are you? I'm great. How are you doing? Good. Thank you so much for joining us today. I think you are actually the first um, woman that I've had on She Dynasty whose title is chief people officer. So I want to dig into that a bit, just because I'm not sure that everyone listening totally understands um, what that role is. So excited for my audience to learn about what a chief people officer does. But you know, I'm always so wowed by anyone, man or woman who makes it into a C-suite because you know, there's not a lot of uh, roles in those in those places. So I want to hear all about you and your journey. And I'm excited to get started. Well, wonderful. And thank you so much for letting me be on the She Dynasty today, because it's just something that I've been really excited to be a part of. I've watched several of the episodes before, and I think it's just a great way to showcase amazing women. So I'm honored. Fantastic. So tell us, what does a chief people officer do? Tell us about your role. Tell us about your day to day. Sure thing. Um, Well, I think at the simplest version and probably the briefest version, the chief people officer hires, retains, and inspires the talented SNAP. Um, And I think it's a really cool opportunity for us to think about how we can bring in amazing people to the team, how we make sure that they feel fulfilled and are able to develop their careers and their time with us. Um, And also we've got a lot of work related to diversity, equity, and inclusion. So there's an opportunity to inspire and raise the awareness of our teams. And um, I'm assuming that you work closely with folks that are on the HR team? When you think about the classic uh, human resources function, that is part of my scope. But in addition to that, I have recruiting, learning and development, total rewards, real estate, and diversity, equity, inclusion, among um, some other functions. So it's, it's a bit broader than pure HR. And so tell us, um, tell us a typical day in your, in your life at work. Well, it's interesting. If you'd asked me that question two years ago versus last year versus today, I feel like the world has shifted very rapidly. Um, So right now, I feel like the core parts of my day are just staying really close to the needs of the business and just thinking about, you know, how my team is supporting, making sure we get you know, from here to there. So my typical day is thinking about, are we achieving our recruiting strategy? Are we supporting our leaders? Um, when we think about our global teams, are we making sure that, you know, teams outside of, you know, LA, for example, which is where we're headquartered are having similar experiences to our headquarters teams. So that's a, a big focus area. You know, additionally, there's a lot of opportunities to help our teams grow and raise their awareness of the perspectives, not only of other team members, but also of the community that we're supporting via Snapchat. So is your team currently uh, all working remotely because of the pandemic or how, how is that working right now? 
any of our global offices that have been allowed to open, we are inviting team members to come back because a lot of people really would like to maybe get out of their current living situation and get into the office. So we make their offices available as soon as we can, but we're not requiring any team members to come in before September 1st. And we've actually just rolled out that we will be doing a very flexible work structure when all of our offices open um, to really lean into this, this virtual model that's worked really well and been far more inclusive, but we wanna add in some of the special sauce that comes from like getting together with teams. Absolutely, and how, how many people are at Snap Inc? We're at right about 4,000. Well, you know, I, right now as a, as a business owner myself, we're trying to figure out what to do with employees in terms of, you know, working from home, coming back in the office. And, you know, I think you're right. There's, you know, there's a, a huge kind of longing for people to want to interact with others. But at the same time, you know, that flexibility is obviously very, very attractive to people. So wait, are you guys going to go back to um, having to be in the office full time or you're not sure yet? Or We think that for our team, it's they really, in a lot of ways, thrive from this flexibility that we've offered from this, this time apart. And so we want to continue to allow that. But we also are a little worried that we might be drafting off of the relationships that we built while we were together. And so there's some things that do work better together. So I imagine what we'll see is a a large majority of our time, team members are not in the office, but on specific needs, maybe a cross-functional team project, then they'll likely come into the office to work on those things. Or if a team member is just like, I want to get out of my house today, the office will be available to them. So it's a heavy virtual, probably like a virtual first hybrid model. Interesting. Are you guys downscaling your office space because of that or keeping everything the same? So I think that like so many of us, and and also it's true of tech in general, we want to experiment and learn. This is a really great moment for us all to kind of figure out what works. So we don't want to lock into any major decisions like exiting real estate that we may find out doesn't work for us after we try this for a while. Um, So we're really thinking about it more of how can we curate our space differently so that when teams are coming in for those collaborative moments, maybe our conference rooms look different and they're more creative spaces. And so I think we'll uh, keep our real estate footprint, you know, at least while we're figuring it out, but rethink what cool stuff we could do inside of that footprint. Fantastic. What do you feel that, you know, besides um, obviously the in-person interaction that people are, is there anything else people are really missing? Is it, is it just that? Is there anything else besides that, that people really are craving or missing? I think it's, you know, probably a couple of, of things. There's the, the in-person interactions probably have a couple dimensions. One, there's just the efficiency of not having to get on a Zoom for a quick conversation. So in some cases, team members might want to arrange like, hey, let's both be in the office for this day. And just to kind of that, that faster, uh, you know, knocking out of information. Other team members miss the ability to learn from somebody who might just be near them um, and to pick their brain on topics. So we're thinking about how we can recreate that in a virtual setting. So it's kind of this, the serendipitous moments, the things that happen either socially or or from a developmental standpoint or a problem solving standpoint that, that occur when you can just bump into somebody. So our teams are really asking for that, but what we don't want to lose, it's been really inclusive virtually, especially globally, where we can bring more team members into conversations. And so we, we don't want to lose that. Yeah, I think you've touched on a challenge that we're, we're also experiencing is, you know, it seems when you hire somebody who's, you know, more experienced or seasoned, 
you know, they have a lot of obviously, um, you know, history, know what to do. They're coming in with the know-how, but when you hire people that are, you know, more junior in their careers, just being able to watch and stand next to someone and hear conversations. And, you know, that's the piece that I think is, is harder for people that are, you know, more junior. Absolutely. One of the big initiatives that we're launching is rethinking how we onboard team members. We're obviously already doing a lot of, you know, hiring right now where team members have never been to an office because they were hired during the pandemic. And so it made us think, instead of just doing a brief orientation, how do we structure more of a, let's say a year long cultural onboarding where maybe there's not a mentor, but like a buddy who they can ask, where do I find this? Who might know this information? And then we bring them together with people they might not have otherwise met just to, to help them really feel what, what we all just did naturally when people were in offices. Absolutely. Yeah. You mean, you, you, you know, you're starting out in your career, you come to your first day, you have your first zoom meeting and then you get off and then you're alone and, you know, it's just, it's just <laughs> an odd thing. So, you know, I hear you. It's, I think it's a struggle. A lot of companies are trying to figure out. Absolutely. So. Well, even thinking about changing jobs, some team members have said my transition from one job to another job was different laptop. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. Awesome. Well, thank you for, you know, sharing a little bit about um, what you deal with. So I want to I want to talk a little bit about your history and how you got to where you are today. So we're going to kind of rewind back to um, your childhood. So you um, are from Richmond, Virginia. Tell us a tiny bit about your childhood, what it was like to grow up there. Sure. Um, I actually lived in Virginia my whole life before joining the SNAP team about five years ago. And so, you know, I've always lived near a big city, but outside of it. And so I found that that really is a, a good representation of how I grew up. I had access to really cool things, especially in, in DC, being able to go to the Smithsonian museums and be able to access just a really, a really cool, t- a really cool city that had a lot of, you know, different cultural offerings. But then I also am a bit of a small town person at heart. I like open green spaces. And so I spent most of my time either in Richmond or in suburbs, just, I like to hike and take nature walks and all of those sorts of things. So that's, that's maybe a snapshot of somewhere between pumpkin picking in the fall and going out to museums um, in the summer. Awesome. And I love asking when you were in grade school, like, what did you think you wanted to be when you grew up? Oh my gosh. When I was in grade school, I probably had a couple of different things. Um, I loved animals. So I thought I would be a veterinarian. I then thought maybe I would be a stage actress. Um, not by the way, I had no talents in any of the things that I'm about to list. They were just things I liked doing. I thought that I would maybe be um, a writer. And that's probably the one that's closest to what ended up showing up in my professional life, which was I recognized that I didn't, I had a passion for, but not necessarily a talent for the arts, but it's something that I really liked but I had a flair for math and that ultimately is what got me into my accounting degree. But as my career progressed, I found that when I got into financial disclosures, which is effectively writing the business story around financial statements and sharing with the public, I got to merge writing with math. Awesome. You know, it's interesting. I think 
veterinary, being a veterinarian and, or an actor are probably the two most common uh, <laughs> answers I get when I ask this question. It's just such an interesting thing. Like so many kids, obviously, cause they have a love for animals. They immediately just want to be a doctor. And then there's like the side of everybody that just, you know, wants to, a little bit of that fame. So it's kind of interesting, a pattern that I see. And it's hilarious. I think for me, so I did drama in and really only through grade school. I didn't continue it in high school, but I actually played Cassius in Julius Caesar, um, the Shakespeare play in Shakespeare's Folgers Theater in DC. And I decided that that must mean that I was going to be a really great like actress, actor. Um, and yeah. I never did anything with it. So I think that's probably one of those early life moments of like, well, if you want to do something, you actually have to do something about it. Right. So I understand then you had a shift and um, you attended George Mason University and to get your B, um, BS in accounting. Correct. Um, so you obviously you said you had a flair for math. So how did you make the decision to eventually kind of choose that as a as a major? Yeah, when I started in my undergrad uh, early years, it was really about, you know, taking a bunch of different classes, figuring out what fit, especially, you know, building up to the business you know, program itself. And I had to do some of that soul searching around. I love the arts. Um, you know, I spent, I grew up dancing, drawing, writing, a lot of creative programs, et cetera. But as I mentioned, never being that great at any of them. And I had my first accounting class and it just clicked. It made sense to me. Uh, it, it followed a logic that appealed to me. I've always loved puzzles growing up. And I think that there is a bit of a puzzle to, you know, financial uh, problems. And so I thought, well, okay, why don't I do this thing that I feel like I'm naturally good at and get a job that will pay the bills such that I can do art on the side as my hobby. And that's how I made the choice to go into accounting. Do you consider yourself a creative, a creative person? I consider myself a creative person at heart. Yes. Okay. Interesting. And you also played violin, I understand. I did. Yes, I missed that one. I, I played violin up until um, my college years. Um, and really, the only reason why I also pulled back on the arts was to get at the time the at Mason to get into the business program. Any of the arts classes weren't even electives. They wouldn't count towards my degree at all. And I remember my mom saying to me, if you want to take these classes, you're paying for them. And I was like, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll stick to it as a hobby. I'll, I'll find another way to do the classes. And I think that cemented it as well. I stopped violin. I stopped dancing and. Yeah. So many, so many parents will, you know, again, another pattern I see when it comes to creative or classes of the arts, parents will be like, Oh, we're not paying for that or use that as a hobby. You mm -hmm. know, it's really interesting for creative people who are creative minded, who want to go into a career. Sometimes that can be really confusing. It's interesting. It's one of the things I've actually taken as I raise my son, um, who's eight, almost nine, is that I want to support him in whatever he's gravitating towards. Because I, I agree with you. There's things when you look back in your life and you're like, what would have happened on that road not taken? Is uh, playing a violin like riding a bike, like you could pick it up right now and play like no time has passed or it's not like that? Um, no, not for me at least. So we recently moved and the prior owners left uh, a music room, which was really amazing. And, you know, we wanted it for our son. And one of the pieces of, um, musical instrument was a violin. So I went to pick it up to show my son that I used to play. And I couldn't even remember how to play Twinkle Twinkle Little Star. 
So one of my goals is for my son and I to take piano and violin together to me to get back on that bike and for him to learn it. So tell us, um, what was your very first like paid job? My very first paid job was working at the limited in the mall as a sales clerk. Um, for those who may not remember the limited, uh, it's a clothing store and yes, it was, I felt very cool to have gotten a job there. Very nice. And what was your first job right out of college? My first job right out of college was um, joining the accounting firm of Beers and Cutler, where uh, they did, you know, uh, professional services, providing accounting and tax services to um, private clients. Was it easy to find a job right out of college? Um, It was, but I think it's because the decisions that I made when I was nearing my graduation. So there was an accounting honors fraternity that I joined as I was getting to the back half of my degree. And they did a really good job helping students think about life after school and put on a lot of networking organizations and events. And so I joined those and managed to network with a couple of different firms. So when it came time for campus interviewing, I was already somebody they'd become familiar with. And so I, I was able to secure a couple interviews and got the role that I wanted. Any internships during college? I did. I actually did a co-op program while I was at George Mason, which was a, a year program where you would take, it was a full class load, but just a little bit of a lighter full class load. And then, um, so I would effectively go to classes two days a week. And then I, with a couple night classes, and then I would do this co-op three days a week. Uh, and I was at MCI in their tax department for um, two semesters of school. So I I guess that was my first real professional job. Nice. And I assume when you went into this first job, it was probably mostly a male dominated job, right? Mostly male. And, or was there a good balance? It's interesting because I had four bosses um, because I was an intern. So I, I worked and supported a couple of different people and um, the most the second most senior of those four was a female. And so I think that was one of my earliest, like she was the one I reported to. She was the one who I, I told how I was structuring my day. Um, so I think that was one of, in addition to my mom, who's just been an amazing professional. If I look back on my career, I always had someone to see in front of me. I came into the early days of my career, not seeing that there were fewer women because I happened to have the benefit of having great women in my career very early on. Right. So other, so you, your mom was a, a mentor to you. Uh, also, when you said at your first job, there was um, a woman who you kind of looked up to anybody else that had a significant impact um, on kind of your career path. There's two people really stand out um, for me, especially when I think about amazing female leaders that I've gotten to work with. And there was a, a woman during my time at my, actually my supervisor during my time at Marriott, who just, was one of those leaders who took the time to be available for staff members at any level. And I got to you know, pick her brain. I got to ask her how she thought about things. It was back when we did a lot of traveling. And so I'd get to be on planes and ask her about her career. And she was just always so open. It was like my first instance of somebody who cared deeply about opening the door for others after she had made it. Um, and so I had a ton of, ton of respect for her. And then I would say another amazing female leader who she was just tough. 
like tough as nails. And so there was these two really differing perspectives of strong female leaders in my formative kind of career points of, you know, both of them incredibly smart. And I saw that there was an interesting space in between those two styles, which I think really formed who I was of like, I had a lot of those empathetic attributes, but I'm also very tough and can be, if you ask my husband and my son, I can be a little set in my ways. And so I thought like, how do I balance being open-minded and inclusive and empathetic with really being able to drive things forward? And I think that that formed how I like to show up as a leader. Yeah. It's interesting that you saw both of those perspectives, you know, sometimes, sometimes those bosses that are tougher, I mean, you can learn a lot from them, right? Cause you're constantly trying to figure out how to please them. And it also prepares you for sometimes the real world dealing with people that are difficult or, you know, you have to please people or clients. And, you know, I, I agree with you. I've had in my adult professional career, I've had bosses that were really, really tough. Um, you know, ones that I just would go home at night and be like, how am I going to make this person happy? And it would just like, it, it felt like it pushed me to want to do better. But I have also had people in my life who, you know, were to your point, more empathetic and would just talk to me. And I got so much from those two different dynamics. So, you know, I think that people, the, the, the learning moment from this is if you have a tough boss right now, it's not always the worst thing because you learn something from it. And you the learn- interesting thing is to your point, you know, the boss I mentioned was tough, was empathetic as well. I spent a lot of time, but she pushed me right. and I needed that. Right. And so I think that you're, you're so right. I grew tremendously under both of them in different ways. Absolutely. All right. So I understand um, that early in your career, you hit a snag um, when you were passed over for a promotion. So tell us that story and what happened. Yeah. You know, that was a really important life moment. And I think it gets to something that I believe very much, which is a bit of get out of your own way. Um, So there was a backing up throughout my career. I would either, you know, in public accounting, there's maybe a little bit of passage of time promotion in your early career days, but I'd done well and gotten promoted and just hadn't ever had to really like raise my hand for a promotion. And Fast forward to, you know, this point in my career where there was an opportunity that I knew if it became available, I wanted, but I didn't tell anybody because I hadn't had to do that in the past and it came available and there was another person who wanted it and was going after it. And, you know, there was a period where like that person got it, that person ultimately ended up wanting, you know, to um, do something else in, in another area. And I ended up getting the role, but I remember in that brief moment, I'm like, wait a second, what about me? And I actually, you know, talked to the hiring manager at the time and they're like, well, I didn't know you were interested because you just recently took this other role. And I thought that's what you wanted to do. And I remember being like, why didn't I speak up? Like, why didn't I say anything? And it actually served me really well because if you go to the pivot I made at SNAP where I was in finance and and then transitioned to the people role, that came about when I was stepping into the interim CFO role at SNAP and I had an opportunity to have a conversation that was around, you know, I'm, I'm happy to serve in this capacity, but I think I have an interest in the people side of the organization. And that would have never been... I don't think I would have ever been thought of for that if I hadn't expressed interest and it ended up being just such a fulfilling role for me. So 
I learned from being passed over for that promotion because I didn't raise my hand that, you know, what's that saying? You, you miss a hundred percent of the swings not taken. hundred percent. You know, I interviewed um, a woman on my podcast. Her name is Chelsea Grayson. Um, she was former CFO of American Apparel and True Religion. And now she serves on multiple boards. Um, incredible force. And she, um, you know, she talks a lot about how important it is to make sure that your boss is invested in what you want your career path is. And, you know, just from day one, telling them where you want to go, because at that point they feel um, invested in helping you get there and they feel like part of the process. Um, so I think what you're saying is an incredible learning moment for anyone who's listening. It's okay to raise your hand. Um, there's a, I don't know if you ever watched um, Mad Men. I'll never forget yes. early on. There's this one scene and I can't remember her name, but there's, there's a scene where somebody quits and there's this beautiful corner office that's available and it's like empty for, for months and everyone's like wondering who's going to get it. And, you know, this was back in the day where women were not like thought of as, you know, um, kind of on the forefront in the industry. And I think there's one woman copywriter or a woman that raises her hand and goes to the boss and says, hey, no one's taken the corner office. Can I have it? And uh, the boss looked at her and said, sure. And then the other guys went to the boss and were like, why'd you give it to her? And he said, well, nobody else asked. Yeah. So <laughs> I, I always like thought that that was a learning moment. So sometimes you just have to raise your hand and ask for it. And I think people will be surprised how much further that will get you if you can just find the courage to do it. Cause to your point, you know, if you don't ask, you're already starting with the answer. No. Right. And if you ask, you probably have more of a chance of it either being yes or being yes at some point in the future. And, you know, it also touches on something that's always fascinated me and, and has impacted me personally of, you know, they say that, that competence and confidence are negatively correlated in women where we need to feel that we're at a much higher competency level near probably mastery level before we apply for that next role. Whereas, you know, stereotypically men might go for it when they're, it's more of a risk. And so I've always tried to think about, you know, it goes back to that statement I made about getting out of my own way of, am I limiting myself by my own self-doubt or my own false perception that I need some form of mastery here? And I find that even just having those conversations showing interest or saying like, I think I bring these things to the table have proved to me again and again that I needed the confidence and there's an understanding of a basic fundamental skill level and then growth and competence, which happens so often when you're talking with you know people looking to promote, hire, et cetera. Nice. And then you moved to Freddie Mac to do similar kind of work um, right before the start of the 2008 financial crisis. Uh, tell us how, how that had an impact on your career. You know, that was a, a really challenging time for financial services. As, as so many people know, working in a financial service company during the credit crisis. And I think the thing that it taught me the most was the newspaper headlines about everything that was going on felt really strange when I was working with people who were working really, really hard to do the right thing. And it taught me that there's always two sides to a story. And I carried that with me for the rest of my career. When I, when I hear, um, especially in my current role, concerns between two team members, when, whenever I've heard 
a complaint or even a, a solution to a problem, I always make sure to step back and think there's another side to this. Make sure you have the full perspective before you make a decision. And I think especially as you know, we think about whether it's gender or underrepresented, um, you know, team members that might be joining a company, it's really important to step back and think, what might this feel like from their perspective before making a decision that could have a significant impact on their life or career? Understood. All right. 2009, you started at AOL to help them step up their SEC reporting after they left Time Warner. So it seems like you had quite a few roles and you rose through the ranks there pretty quickly. Um, so you moved from director of external reporting to controller and chief accounting officer. So tell us about kind of the movement within that company and how that all worked out. It was really fun to join AOL at a time where they were really cementing their, their rebranding. So many people would be like, wait a second, like the dial-up discs? I was like, no, 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 digital advertising. And it was fun to watch the suite of brands that were under the AOL umbrella just really, you know, shine uh, again as they were focused on digital advertising, really leaning into that technology element as well. Uh, and that was my first taste of both um, digital media and tech. And I just fell in love with it. And, you know, through time, I think my general career progression has been about follow an interesting problem. And I think that can actually uh, sum up most of my career steps is I tend to get sought out or I, I started building a reputation around being a problem solver. And so I think when companies were looking to either spin out and stand on their own or, you know, in other cases, uh, stand up net new functions or kind of rebuild existing functions, my name would come up. And the same thing happened while at AOL, um, as, you know, we just continued my time there, I gravitated towards complex matters. And I think that is what also ended up putting me into a couple of different roles that I, I was known to be up for a challenge. And so when uh, an opportunity would come up, thankfully, I would, I would pretty frequently get asked. I also had to do a little bit of the hand raising uh, there as well. So was there a moment where you kind of said to yourself, you know, I want to make it into to, to be a C-suite executive? Is that, where was that moment in your career? Is that something that just kind of happened or was it something that you made a decision you wanted to make as a goal? I've never been goal oriented and that's a very strange thing to say because I'm a very ambitious person. Okay. But I'm fascinated by the journey. And I remember I had a mentor early in my career that talked about not missing the doors that open when you're on a straight path. Like, don't forget to look at the doors that open on either side of you. And so I've always been really broad viewed as I think about what my career could look like. There was a point early in my career where becoming a C-level executive just didn't seem possible. And I think it goes back to your earlier comments because I didn't see a lot of people that looked like me in the C-suite. Um, and as I got a little further on in my career, especially, you know, as I did start to see and work with some really amazing leaders, I start to rethink what my career could look like. I had great mentors, both male and female who, who pushed me. Um, and I had some really great role models. And that started to crystallize this idea that I could be anything as long as I didn't limit myself. And I started to be able to see, you know, as at that time I was an accountant, so I could be chief accounting officer and I became a chief accounting officer. Love what you just said, that 
you're not someone who sets goals yet you're very ambitious. I think that's really, really interesting. It's, um, it's probably a little bit of how I'm wired to, uh, I get bored easily. Mm-hmm. And so I think that naturally drives me to want to push. I don't like being comfortable. I, I'm very growth mindset and that's made the journey really fun for me because I can, as I feel like I'm starting to become maybe more competent in something, or, or I become aware of something that's evolved either professionally or in the world, I always take these kind of pause, look around, pause, look around. And that creates my momentum for ambition, I guess, which is curiosity about the world, curiosity about business, um, met with somebody who naturally likes to push herself. That's probably, that has definitely served me better than having a goal. Right. So it's like, it's this idea of kind of pushing forward and seeing where it takes you, but knowing that it's propelling you somewhere up. Absolutely. I love that. Absolutely. I love that. Okay, great. All right, let's see. So in the midst of managing, obviously this incredible kind of career growth, you got married, you started a family. Tell us about, you know, juggling that as, you know, an executive kind of growing in their career. It's, it's interesting because I had a bit of a, a moment and I'd really advise, you know, any parent as they're thinking about starting a family to not fall into a trap that I'm about to share that I fell into. So I uh, had recently been promoted. It was my first time I was promoted to a VP level role. And a few months after that, I found out that I was having um, my son. I found out I was going to um, be bringing my little boy into the world. And I remember being like, oh my gosh, how am I going to tell my boss? Like, I, they just promoted me. They're going to regret it. You know, and I was just crushed. And this is this major happy life moment for me. And I went into my boss's office to tell him that I was pregnant. And I was bracing myself for him to just be crestfallen to talk about what's the contingency plan, because how can I do this job? I remember I told him and he laughed. He's like, I won the bet. I'm like, what are you talking about? He's like, well, my wife and I have had a bet on how long before you had your first child. I win. And he's like, great news. Congratulations. And that was it. It was support. It was happiness. And I was like, okay, well, obviously, you know, I'll figure out a coverage plan. He's like, Lara, I know you're going to figure out a coverage plan. It's fine. And it was one of those first moments where, you know, I put a lot of pressure on myself about what others were going to expect of me as a professional parent, especially at a senior level. And I found so many times where I had to, Hey, I've got to go pick up my son. Hey, I want to go see this performance. And I hope maybe I've been lucky. I don't think that's true. Every time my, my supervisor said, so why are you still here? So I think that if, if people take the time, I know it's not perfect. I know it doesn't always work, but I found that if I communicate and I'm clear about what works for me, but I'm also delivering on what is needed for my role, I can take all that extra noise about not being good enough out of the equation. Yeah, I can, I mean, I can only imagine how many women are going to hear this that are going to relate to that where they're kind of driving in their career and they you know, are eventually or are pregnant or going to have a baby and it's such amazing news and you just that anxiety about telling your boss and you know what it's going to mean to them I think there's probably you know a lot of people that are are going to relate to that moment so having somebody super supportive is 
so important. So if there's any men or other bosses listening, please don't put women through that because it's really hard enough as it is to think about just sharing that news. You know, it's a struggle for, for working moms. It's a struggle because here you are someone who's driven and you want to move up in your career, but you know, having a family is also important to you and you want to be able to find, you know, the balance and, you know, so many women have done it successfully, you know, and absolutely. And I think there's an interesting point in there, which is there's, there's an aspect of reminding women to, or, or any parent who's the primary caregiver, I suppose, to share what they need um, and, and figure out what works. But there's also something really powerful if you have members on your team who are starting a family to ask them what they need, because there's a lot of people who will probably feel stress at having to raise the question. But, you know, if you happen to be the supervisor, male or female, offering like, hey, this is a big change in your life. How can I support you is, is a really powerful question as a leader. Absolutely. All right. So um, let's move forward. So after AOL, what happened? Um, so when I was at AOL, uh, we got acquired by Verizon, which was amazing. But I, I really love being a public company controller, which means a company that's doing their own financial statements, not a subsidiary. And Verizon was amazing. But I, I really wanted to get back in that space. And so I got a call to join SNAP. Um, they were building up their finance and accounting function to get ready for the IPO. And so here was this opportunity to work for an amazing company, to go through an IPO with them, to be part of like the early building of, of the teams. Um, and if you ask my husband, he was like, and moved to California. Um, they, we'd just gone through a pretty cold winter. And so um, my husband was quite keen for maybe a, a warmer climate. And so we moved to SNAP and it just has been an amazing, amazing journey because it's being part of a company that is just doing such amazing work, but then also growing rapidly, tapped into another level of, I'd say, leadership skills, which was that that really highly adapted, iterative leadership style. Like you, you may have technical acumen, but how can you be nimble? How can you stay responsive to the business? Um, and I, I'd say that's been probably the cornerstone of my time is just thinking about how do we build things that can scale? How can we stay nimble and fast? And you know, maybe to the earlier conversation, it's a highly creative company. So it was a chance to kind of get back into a space where I was surrounded by really just brilliant, creative people. And were you recruited for this job or was it something you kind of put yourself out there for? I was recruited for the job. So uh, this goes to maybe uh, always be mindful of bridges as you're making transitions in life because somebody called somebody who knew me um, and they said, you really should call Lara for this job. And the recruiter called me and the rest is history. And so were you, so were you even expecting the call or just, you were just kind of happily in your career and just one day, just one phone call changes everything. I, yeah, I was, I wasn't looking for roles. Um, I imagine, you know, whenever there's an acquisition of a company, I imagine recruiting activity uh, starts to pick up a bit, but no, I was happy where I was. I was starting to think about what it might look like if I went back into a standalone public company, but um, so the timing was right, but I wasn't seeking it. Okay. I'm going to back up a second because I understand sure. you had another kind of big snag in your life and career where you got some health news that wasn't great. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, it was actually a, a really impactful moment in my life. 
not only personally, but professionally. So um, you've heard me mention that I have a, a little boy. Um, he's my only child. And this is part of the reason why he's my only child. Uh, we found out when he was two that I was diagnosed with ovarian cancer. And as um, I guess professional luck would have it, I'd also just recently been promoted to chief accounting officer at AOL shortly before that. So I had another moment of being given this amazing professional opportunity, but then having to go to my boss and share this time what was truly bad news. And I had to do a lot of soul searching. You know, first there was this gut wrenching, you know, I cannot leave my son without a mother. And AOL was just amazing. They, you know, offered up their, their network to, you know, any doctors that I might want to talk to. Um, and, you know, I ultimately found some really amazing oncology support that, you know, I'm here, I beat it, but I, I went through this pivot of, I don't want to fail AOL and I don't want to fail my job. This was a big moment. This was my first C-level role. And yet there was a just non-starter on me putting risk to my family and the soul searching I really had to do was, you know, is there a way that I don't let anybody down? And what I realized the way I didn't let anybody down was I asked for the help that I needed. Um, And my team was amazing. I, I had to go through chemotherapy and I stayed in touch, but when I had to be out of pocket, I was out of pocket. Um, and I, I worked through, I'm not recommending, uh, there's a lot of treatments where it doesn't make sense to work through, but I could work through a good amount of it. My team was very great about me being remote for a lot of time. And I leaned on friends and even the daycare that my son was going to, they volunteered to come to my house and like bring dinner, take care of my son, take him out of the house. And so it was this moment where I realized sometimes to be able to do it all, you have to recognize that you can't do it alone. And that was game changing for me because I've always been the type of person who doesn't like to ask for help. And I realized the power in it for not only myself, but again, at that moment where I had to think about how can I pay it forward? Um, And so I always try to think about when people are struggling, when they're dealing with their own challenges, How do I make it easier for them to not have to choose family or work? How can I make it easier for them to just prioritize one over the other based on what's needed in their life? Yeah. I mean, I can just only imagine, um, you know, the pressure you you get this news and you obviously have to figure out your family and, you know, work and your career. And I just can't even imagine the whirlwind of thoughts and, you know, not wanting to let people down, but it sounds like the way you got through it is really kind of understanding that you had to put yourself first at that moment. Um, in order to not let people down, you had to get better. You had to get healthy. It's, it's interesting. Um, absolutely. I, I realized the greatest thing I could do is exactly that, get healthy and, um, stay around. But I also learned that I couldn't let hard things. Um, there's actually a, a, wall plaque I have in my bedroom that says we can do hard things. And I learned to give things space when they needed space. Like if I, if I just needed to break down, I'd go cry somewhere. But a lot of other times I, I just wouldn't let the fear and anxiety consume me because it just wasn't serving. It wasn't serving me. It wasn't serving my family. It wasn't serving work. So I, I would obviously grieve and go through the process whenever I needed to, 
But I learned in that moment, if something wasn't serving me, a feeling, et cetera, then put it away. <laughs> like just deal with it and put it away and not let it control me. Okay. All right. So you talk a little bit in your pre in your pre-interview questionnaire about the civil unrest that happened uh, last summer and how that had a profound impact on you. And I'm sure it had a profound impact on the way you kind of do your job just because the, the things are very, you know, intertwined. Talk to us a little bit about that, how it affected you personally and professionally. It, it really, I mean, it knocked me on my heels and from so many dimensions, I was living the classic, but I'm a good person mindset of, you know, I, I wasn't doing anything bad to others. Therefore I wasn't part of the problem. But what I realized um, through so many of the great people, both at work and in my personal life who helped to educate me better is I needed to actually, it was, it was, I needed to do more than not doing something wrong. I actually, I, I had to do something right. Um, and I had to raise my awareness and my education. There was so much that from my life perspective, I was missing the fundamental understandings of what others lived experiences actually were and how even, especially in this role, systems that I was building to be fair may not be equitable. And so how we had to think about making sure that we were building things that could actually help people get to where they wanted to go coming from very different places. And so I grew a lot personally um, and that I, I started educating myself on different lived experiences. And I um, didn't ask those with those lived experiences to take on the burden of educating me. There's plenty of information out there for me to educate myself. So I tried to, you know, put the work on myself versus others. Um, but then I also then thought about, okay, what do I need to do for my place of privilege to actually support and advance others? And that really framed not only how I think about my life, how I raised my son, et cetera, but also I, I sat in a really great role to help to try to drive um, change uh, along with some amazing exec team members um, at SNAP. Absolutely. I, I relate so much to what you're saying. It, it, there was a moment for me also where just not doing wrong was not enough. So I, I really relate to that moment. And I'm sure it probably formed and shaped a lot of decisions that you made as the chief people officer at SNAP. I'm sure you know, really opened your eyes to a lot of things. I mean, this is, you know, probably exactly in that wheelhouse of how to make sure that everyone was treated equally and fairly and happy. Um, I'm sure that that had a big impact. Absolutely. And we went through, we'd already were working on what our um, diversity, equity, and inclusion strategy was, but I think this just added some dimension and momentum behind a lot of how we were thinking about it. And it was a shift that happened with people. Uh, there was a, a shift that people went from having a conceptual understanding to a, a more deep understanding and, and became more intrinsically motivated to do the work. So I think that that was one of the things in my role, making sure that momentum continues uh, so that we can actually drive change. Because the hard part about this is it's, yes, there's things we can do today, but the actual change is going to take time. And that's hard for people who've been dealing with this for a very, very long time is how do you show enough progress that it's clear progress is being made, knowing some of the lasting changes are going to happen over years in, in some cases. Great. Love to hear that. Okay. So I think we're coming to the end of our interview. Um, I have some, what I call rapid fire questions. 
Okay. So I'm just going to ask, and you're just going to answer in one sentence if you can, as best you can. Okay. All right. So um, if you could completely switch careers and do something very, very different, what would it be? I would say interior design, but I lately have a passion for gardening. Um, and I joked to my husband, I want to get a little cottage in England and jam and do a cute little English garden. Awesome. <laughs> what is your greatest strength? Empathy. What is your biggest weakness? Self-criticism. What keeps you up at night professionally? Um, civil unrest has definitely uh, been a concern. And, and really, when I say that, it's, it's making sure that it yields the progress and social justice that we need to see uh, in our country and in the world. The pandemic and wanting it to come to a close. Um, and making sure I'm leaving a better world for my son. Beautiful. And if you could leave one piece of advice for women who are just starting out in their careers, who dream someday of making it to being in a, you know, a C-suite executive, what would it be? The thing that I've looked back and realized I should have done more is trust my instincts. Whenever I have made a wrong decision in my life, I found that I had an instinct for it and I rationalized myself out of it and I made the wrong choice. So it doesn't mean don't use reason, but don't ignore your instincts. Great advice. And then finally, what does success mean to you? Success to me is a feeling between fulfillment and happiness um, that I think is a really, a really special balance of being proud of where you've gotten and feeling good about it. Um, and for me, success would definitely be making my parents proud. I love that. Awesome. Well, I think that brings us to the end of our interview. Lara, I really enjoyed speaking with you today. Thank you so much for being here and for being a part of the She Dynasty family. Valerie, thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be joining the She Dynasty family. And um, I, I really enjoyed getting to talk to you today.